Good morning, High Point. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. This is found on page 1500 of your pew Bible. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Hey everyone, that was a good hi. Um, <clears throat> so this weekend onward we're talking about family. I think I left my clicker in the office, Jill, if you might go grab that for me. Um, hey, so if you're up in the booth there, we're gonna advance like this, Phil, okay. Um, hey, uh, so family uh, stability is what we're talking about this week. And um, so here's, here's where I think we should, let's start. If you go to the third slide. Traditions sometimes tear. They tear. Um, when what we do, like culturally, what we've done, and what we do, that is what experience is leading towards at this moment, when there's a big difference between those two, the, what we've been doing doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't feel like it makes sense. Let me give you an example of this. When I was in, to try to get out of our culture a little bit, where we'll get just, we'll get angry quite as fast. Um, a, f- a friend of mine was a missionary in um, West Africa, um, and he, when he went to this, this town, thanks Joe, when he went to this um, village and they were living there, they noticed that basically every day, the men and women of the village would go get water. And husbands and wives would go together, and the wife would carry usually between a five and ten gallon jug, and the husband would walk about 15 feet in front of her, and they would walk like that a mile and a half to this river. She would fill the jug with water, put it on her head, and then they'd walk the same way a mile and a half back to the village. And 
he was like American guy. So, you know, he grew up in a post-feminist culture. And so the first thing is like, he like did his dutiful and feminist getting angry thing like this is misogyny. And then he realized that that was kind of dumb because like if, if it was real misogyny, the guy would be like, woman, go get, go to the river and get some water. I'm going to be here eating potatoes. And that's not what happened. He would go down and back. But then he thought, you know, it's kind of weird that they don't even talk to each other. Like the guy walks out in front. She walks, like there's got to be some kind of explanation for this, right? I mean, this is just kind of weird. And so he thought he'd ask them. So there's this one couple that he knew decently well. They're coming back. You know, she's got the thing on her head. The guy's walking 15 feet in front of her. And he goes, hey, like, I've noticed you guys do this. Like, what gives, man? Like, what, what, why do you, why do you do that? And he, he kind of, the guy kind of looked at me. He was like, I don't know. <laughs> and so he asked a bunch of people why they did it. Because like every couple did this and they, and, it, and they all didn't know. And so he went and he, I mean, this is the fun of being an outsider, right? So he went to a bunch of the tribal elders and he was like, hey, do you guys have any idea why? And so like he did some investigation, talked to some elders, looked around. <coughs> and here's what he found out. He found out that um, the tribe used to do a lot more hunting and a lot less farming. The jungle around their village and between them and the river was much thicker back in the old days. And people didn't hunt um, leopards for prizes back then because they, well, they didn't have a lot of rifles and stuff like that. And bone arrows were a little touchier for, for leopards. And so what happened was this, that women had been going alone. This is a hundred years ago. Had been going alone to the river, often by themselves, with their jug, and they had gotten attacked by leopards. Like, not uncommonly. It's kind of like running in the hills of California these days in mountain lions, right? And, I mean, and women were killed, right? And so men decided that they were going to— So what they did is they carried a machete, and they walked 50 feet in front of their wife, through this path that went through a very dense jungle, right? To protect them. But over the years, they deforested a lot of that area of the jungle between there and the river. The path was much wider. There were much fewer leopards. There was less hunting because of regulations. So there were, there were more animals for the leopards, leopards to eat. Those, and people weren't getting attacked. And after a while, the guys didn't feel particularly terrified. And so they just stopped carrying the machete. And so now it was just a dude walking in front of his wife, and nobody knew why they were doing it. Right? I think that that is how a lot of us feel about the Christian concept of the family and family stability. That it sort of, it feels like that tradition is tearing. Whatever we imagined, the traditional, stable, Christian, whatever that is, that that's kind of tearing and that it, it just feels like there's something wrong with this. Kind of like a woman's carrying the water, looking at her husband, walking from me like, what is wrong with this picture? And for, for different people, it feels different. Um, it might be that you're like, you know, listen, I just think family, that idea is just super hard. And I mean, I'm not even sure monogamy is natural. Or look, Nick, I've already screwed up. I've already been divorced and I've remarried or they've remarried and or I've got kids with two dads or three moms and I'm already kind of off the biblical family track. Or um, look, there's broken families everywhere. Are you not paying attention? It's a little like saying, hey, why don't you build a house during the German bombing blitz in South London, right? Like everything's getting blown up, and you're like, I think I'll build a new house right now. I mean, it just seems like we got everybody to keep their head down and not get their lip clipped off, you know what I mean? Or, um, um, and there's, you know, there's like 20-something engaged couples at High Point right now who are like going to get married, and I think a number of them probably feel a bit like, we're going to do this. Ugh. You know? Or I, I've had people say to me, Nick, I've got plenty of married friends, and they're all miserable. So why would I want to get married so I could become miserable, then lose half my stuff, and never see whatever kids I may have? 
I remember um, a, a woman in her 20s in California saying, um, why would I get married so I could have a 50% shot at being a single mom? Right? Or, um, now, now there's a caveat to that, right? Um, because virtually none of my married friends are miserable. So what do you think gives? Right? Um, birds of a feather kind of flock together. There are things that make marriages great, and there are things that don't make marriages great, and they have to do with who you hang around, what you value, what institutions you utilize, what you believe, how you enforce and support those beliefs. And so people that do those things tend to run together in things like churches, and people who don't tend to run together in different groups. And so it's not uncommon for people to feel like everybody they know is divorced. I know people who are like, everybody I know is still married. How can the divorce rate be this high? And I know people who say, everybody I know is divorced. How can the divorce rate be that low? And it's because of who we hang around with and how we give each other permission to get divorced or we put pressure on each other to stay married. Right? Or you could say, is marriage really necessary? How many times have you heard somebody say, um, do I really need a piece of paper? Do I need a piece of paper to affirm my commitment? And the answer to that is no. The piece of paper is the thing the government created so you could do your taxes. The covenant is what God created, which is what really happens at a marriage ceremony, and that's what you actually need. Right? Or family, like, so, so sometimes we'll just have progressivist sentimentalities because we live in the secular culture. Be like, listen, family, like, you're probably going to define it, is, is like this construct that we've sort of culturally made, and we just need to get rid of that because it's a harmful fiction, and we just need to define family however we feel like we want, because what's going to happen is you're going to come up with some narrow definition, and then you're going to tell people who love each other they're not a family. And I would just like to say about that a basic philosophical point, philosophical ethics. You should never let a problem of vocabulary determine a question of truth. If a particular truth is going to make it difficult for you to figure out what to call something, that is not a sufficient philosophical reason to say that something is false. Right? And so, I don't know what you're going to call all the different arrangements of people who call themselves families that don't try to observe the biblical norm of what a family is. That's actually not relevant to what God is saying we should attempt and what we should do and what we're made for and what those purposes are. And then afterwards, we have to sort out what vocabulary we're going to use to understand what other things are. Um, that's, and that's not even a Christian point. That is just a philosophical point for clarity's sake. Um, securing happy requires what Jesus rejects. I mean, what you, and Jesus very, very clearly rejects abortion and divorce. Now, you talk about a couple of happiness killers, right? Like, if you can't get divorced and you marry somebody, you're kind of stuck. And children are like a big problem. And if you can't get rid of the ones that you don't want before they get here, if you accidentally make them, because we're not going to stop a fornicating, right? Like, what are we going to do? There's no way that we can be happy. And Jesus just like flatly basically says, you can't do either of those. And so that's a little terrifying, right? And there's some people just like, I don't even understand why this is a big deal anyway. When we come to situations like that, where either we philosophically or emotionally we feel like the tradition is tearing, there's one of two things we can do. We can either just throw everything away that's come before us, and we can invent a new technique for the present. Right? I say technique because um, the assumption is, is that there's nothing dictating what you have to do. You're just trying to accomplish something. And if there's no meaning to what you're doing, you're just trying to accomplish something, you're figuring out a technique, a, a game plan. Right? What's the offense we should use for this defense? Does that make sense? And so you're just doing halftime adjustments. You can do whatever you want. The other idea is, is that the tradition that is now tearing had a purpose in the first place. 
And we've been adding on it and adding on it and adding on it. And some of our add-ons maybe don't fit the present situation, and we need to go back and redo it. Right? So, for example, when you work out when you're 20, um, you'd be like, listen, working out is healthy. I want to be healthy, so I'm going to work out. But you might, like, try to bulk up and do all kinds of stuff. That If you do it when you're 40, you're just being an idiot. You're just going to ruin your shoulders. You're just going to make it so you can't do stuff. Because your workout has to change. You're still trying to be healthy. That's the whole point. But your workout is going to change because your you're sub, the, the other things you're trying to get, like nice arms versus I can walk, right? Those are, there's different sub goals, you know what I mean? And so you change. And the same thing's true with the family. But what I want you to see is to start with is Jesus is not inviting us to come up with a new family technique. Because what a family is, what we are as engendered people, and what we're supposed to do in creating a family, it actually comes from a reason, not an arbitrary technique. And that reason is sh- he shares with us in Matthew um, 19, th- th- 3-9. And I, I'm going to go over a bunch of this stuff in a minute, but what I want you to see right now is that Jesus is saying that there's, there's a few verses in, in Genesis chapter 2 that tell us the purpose of family, what it means, how it's constituted, how it functions. And he's saying that we should know that because the Bible tells us that's what it's for because it says for this reason. So a bunch of religious teachers come to Jesus. Now these are people who are essentially PhDs in religion. And they come to Jesus and they're asking him about divorce. And now realize you might be like, you know, the Bible's like 2,000 years old and like it's kind of an old book to be dictating our lives right now. Well, when they came to Jesus, the part of the Bible they were referring to was already 1,500 years old. And they thought it was like from a long time ago and we're living in this brand new Roman Pax Romana and maybe life is really different now. We should do something different. And so he's like, do, I mean, can we basically divorce our wives for every, any reason? And, and I want you to understand that they were quoting the Bible when they said that. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 3, it says that if a man finds something indecent about his bride, he can write her a certificate of divorce and they're divorced. Now, over 1,500 years, a lot of ink had been spilt over what accounts for something indecent. Now, Jesus' interpretation was actually the right one. The Hebrew word in that context refers to that she'd actually already been a fornicating, and he married her on the assumption that she was a virgin, and then finds out that she wasn't. And on that basis, she entered into the marriage on the court of fraud, and he may want out of it. And in that case, he can't kill her or something. He has to write her a certificate of divorce so that she's legally not joined with him, so that if she can remarry, she can remarry, but she's not in some kind of legal limbo, which in many ancient cultures women often were. If a man was through with you, he was just through with you and kicked you out of his house. And for every other dude, it was like, so are you divorced? Are you what? Can I, what are we going to do? Now, the point is, is that um, as time had moved forward, a lot of scholars had seen that something indecent and said, oh, this is really interesting. Because something indecent, indecency is a relative category. Don't you see? Indecency. It's like rude. Well, what's rude? It's relative. What's immodest, right? So what that means is within this command of God, this absolute command of God, there's a word in there that I can understand relatively, which means this is all relative. What's indecent? Who's to say? Right? And so over 1,400 years, rabbis have said lots of things. There were a few rabbis that said it refers to adultery. If your, your wife commits adultery, that's indecent, and that's what Moses was referring to. And in that case, you can divorce her. But other rabbis, and this was the majority school, said, no, it's whatever a husband finds indecent about his wife. 
If a husband finds something that he considers indecent, and no kidding, I know this is a cliche, the example was actually seriously given burning dinner. That was, like, no kidding, literally one of the, the reasons given. And so Jesus is like, okay, guys, okay. And notice the first insult, right? What's the first insult? Think, I mean, haven't you read— you think about how insulting that is. That'd be like you're a freshman at UW, and you sneak into a doctor-level political science class, okay? And they're talking about Keynesian macroeconomics and how it's affecting, like, different sovereignty issues within the European Union and blah, 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 and talking about how we should do certain similar things in America, blah, blah, And you're listening, and then, and then you're, you're sitting, there's this freshman sitting right there, and, and he raises his hand, and the professor calls on him, and he says, Professor Anderson, have you read the Constitution? Right? That's, that's insulting, right? He's a professor of economics and political thought. Like, he, like he's forgotten more than this kid has ever known. Right? I mean, it's ridiculous to think that not only has he not read anything in his field, that he hasn't read literally the first page you would read in his field if you're doing American political philosophy, right? But yet, I mean, some, some of the ways people talk about, for example, the Bill of Rights in America, you kind of wonder, like, have you ever read the Fourth Amendment? Have you ever—right? But it's insulting, but that's how Jesus starts with these guys who are like the top. He's like, you know, I'm not sure you guys have read the Bible. <laughs> it's like being at a pastor's conference, and some guy who's like never been a pastor goes, I'm not sure you guys have read the Bible. Haven't you read about when God created men and women? He made them— male and female. And so he said, for this reason, that is the reason that they are male and female, right? Um, man leaves his father and mother and is united to the wife. So that is the formation of a family and the purpose of meaning of the family comes from the reasons that we should easily derive from God creating the man and the woman, right? So, on the basis of that reason, the inescapable conclusion is there are no longer two but one, and therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Boom. It's all there. It's all right there. It's in one sentence in the Bible. Haven't you read it? And they say, I'm not sure that's relevant, Jesus, because Moses said we could get divorces, and that comes later. See you saying? This com it comes later in the text, and so surely that's the more relevant because it, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. You don't determine what's right when God is dealing with human depravity after the fall. If you want to know what the creative, creational, redemptive purpose of maleness and female is, the formation of family, the creation of, of a union in marriage, what, what children mean, all of that, you go before Genesis 3, where the original purpose is clarified. How we mitigate it after that, we can talk about that. But we have to start by saying, what did God make for what reason? And so what is the inescapable conclusion? Right. And when we look at all, all of what Jesus says and all of what the whole Bible says, what the conclusion ends up being is something like this. Both people and godliness thrives when families reflect the kingdom. When however we do family reflects the kingdom of God, people generally thrive in terms of just blessedness, and godliness thrives. Both happen. Now, 
first step is reflecting the kingdom before we can engage with culture. Now, now, that starts with us understanding something, and that is, is that family is a creation, not a construct. Now, you could argue that it's, it's God's construct in creating, but if anybody gets to make a construct for something, it ought to be the person who made it, right? And so in creation, God does a certain thing, and he tells us what it means, and therefore, what we believe as the church about the family, about men and women, about marriage, about children, about all of these things, is not something we made up, and it's not arbitrary. It's specifically connected to how God created human beings to exist. And Jesus' argument is you have to under, you have to read Genesis 1 through 5, right? And he clarifies, in case we're confused about how to do it, because it's easy to get confused understanding the Bible, Jesus puts on a clinic for how to do it in Matthew 19. So he says, listen, haven't you read Genesis 2? So this is where you get the second creation story. So in the first creation story, men and women are created. You've got men and women. They're both made in the image of God, and then that's all that's said. They receive the creation mandate. Go and, and subdue the earth and fill it with new humans, okay? In chapter 2, then, God gets more specific on how he created the man and woman and what the implications of that is, right? And so he says, The Lord God caused the man to fall asleep into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man for this reason. Okay, so— the reason isn't a, a proposition. The reason is a story. Do you understand that? We're supposed to be able to read the story and take propositional or truth content out of it, and it's supposed to be obvious. Okay? We're not very good at doing that now. It's not a big cultural value, reading stories for truth and moral principles. But it, it, didn't, it wasn't always that way with humans. And we can relearn, I promise. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh— the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now, th- now think about this for a second. Most of the time when we talk about ancient cultures, the main thing we get told about the relationship between men and women is that there was this horrific relationship of terrible misogyny where men subjugated women and it was really, 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 really awful, except for when women are the neck and they can move the man the head any way they want, right? Now, that's actually not what we're told happens in the very beginning. In the very beginning, the woman is taken out of the man— And his deduction from that is not, she was taken out of me, therefore she belongs to me. That's not the deduction he makes from it. Because he hasn't become selfish yet. The deduction he makes is, she was taken out of my very flesh. That is, we share the same flesh. That is, we belong to each other. That's the realization. And he says it poetically because he's really excited about it. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be woman for she was taken out of man. Right? Now, if you read above this, what was the man made out of? Anybody? This is participatory. The dust of the earth. Not even the soil of the ground, mind you. <laughs> Not a particularly dignified creation. In other creation myths, men, are, men come from the gods. Men are made out of gold in the Greek creation myths in the first iteration of humankind. Um, in most cases, men are made out of something different. They're blah, blah, but they're like in some way significantly better. In this one, men are made out of the, the dust. Just stuff that blows around, you know, the stuff that isn't used for anything. God takes that and he makes a man out of it. And when he made the woman, he could have done that too. That's what, so we're, that's what we're supposed to see in the story, right? We're supposed to see that God easily could have done that. 
But instead of doing that, he invents surgery and anesthesia just to make a point. Right? And he, he takes this piece out of the man, forms it into the woman so that in the unselfish but yet still innocent state, he would come to the right deduction. It was one of the first things God taught the man. Right? Most biblical scholars believe, since Augustine, that the reason why God said don't eat from the tree of good and evil is not because God didn't want them to have that knowledge, but because he was going to teach it to them in the proper order related to each other's truths in the proper ways so that we would end up with real knowledge. Rather than trying to drink from it all at once, all disordered in a way that would come into us that would utterly disorder our understanding of everything. And so that the snake was lying when he said, God doesn't want you to have this knowledge. And so the first thing before they eat of the fruit, the first, one of the first things God teaches the man and the woman is what they're made for through the object lesson and story of how he makes her and how they come together, which, which gives us basically four horizons for one flesh, if we're paying attention, right? One is there, one flesh, and they both came out of the same flesh, Right? Then it says, the implication of them coming out of one flesh is that they come together to become one flesh in marriage, which is referring to what you think it's referring to. But that is within the broader context of covenant, permanent relationship, the act of marriage, we'll call it right now, right? And all of that. And then that oneness produces a third oneness, which we're supposed to see in the rise of that, because it told us in the chapter before that in marriage they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we're supposed to see that in being from one flesh, they become one flesh, and in that experience, remember, it's the only thing a human being can't do for themselves. There's only one biological event that you need another human for. I mean— have you ever thought, like, what it would be like if you needed a woman or a man, depending on what, to breathe? Like, you could, like, hold your breath for, like, 20 minutes, but, like, there was something about, like, you had to come back and, like, merge physically in some way and breathe, and then, like, split up for, like, 20 minutes, or to, like, eat, like, somebody had the stomach and somebody had the intestines, and you had to, like, link up to, like, right? But that's not—there's only one biological thing you need another person for, and that is making another person— because from one flesh, they become one flesh and produce one flesh. That's the purpose. It's for this reason. And in that sense, all of these things are bound together. It's one of the reasons why the reduction of secularity doesn't work. That you can talk about gender over here, and sexuality over here, and masculinity, femininity over here, and marriage over here, and romance over there, and sex over here, and children over there, and you can like discuss these all like they're darts thrown into the wall in different places in the room. And you see, these few verses— come at us so hard that what God is saying is, is actually you actually cannot in any meaningfully way, any, any meaningful way, discuss those at all separated from each other. That's why they're all bound together in this thing called covenant. A binding union over all of them together for each other. Which is what marriage is. And then ultimately, by chapter 3 and onward, the one fleshes fall apart, right? There is the serpent coming in, and he doesn't just divide them from God. 
He comes in in a way designed to divide them from each other. And then when God asks them what happened, they accuse each other. And he says to them in the curse, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, which doesn't mean you will be a mouse of a submissive wife and he's in charge now. That's not what that means. What it means is, is that your the word desire within that context, as used in Genesis 4 and other places, is, is, is sort of a cunning desire. It's sort of like a temptation. Your desire will be to sort of come at your husband, use your feminine wiles to control him passively, and he will use his strength to dominate you openly. And so your relationship is broken. And then what happens right after that? The first two boys do what? Kill each other. Cain and Abel, right? And then Cain has some kids. One of them is named Lamech. And what does he do to marriage? Right? Hey, if I can have one wife, why can't I have two? What's the big deal? And right there, by the time, by the time you get to the end of Genesis 4, you've already got the first marriage is broken. It's under a relational curse. Her capacity to have children and his work in the creation mandate, that is what they were given in Genesis 1, is difficult and under a curse, which is tough. The first two kids kill each other. You want to talk about sibling rivalry? And then the guy who survives, kid, invents polygamy because marriage isn't good enough, because the beauty of the fact that his first wife is just a woman isn't enough. He thinks he needs another one. In that context, when all flesh goes bad, there is another one who has to become flesh to make possible the redemption of all flesh, and that is Jesus. That is the purpose of the incarnation. He becomes flesh to save all flesh so that through his death and resurrection, we can become one with him. Get it? And you see, if we see that, that leads to certain relatively inescapable conclusions in relationship to the meaning of marriage, the meaning of family, the meaning of gender, the meaning of those kinds of things. Like, one, gender complementarity is utterly fundamental, not to just a Christian faith, but to human life. We Christians believe it and we teach it, but it is a fact that's true for everyone. Meaning that maleness and femaleness is a real thing. Gender is not a construct. There are certain things we construct and lay on it. There are certain things we say masculinity should be that has nothing to do with what God made men to be. And there are things that we put on femininity and we say it's part of it. So we put constructs on the foundational reality of gender, but the foundational reality of gender in itself isn't a construct, it's creation. The second is, is that um, if family, that family is an attacked and broken institution because it's a divine institution. When God created everything, and he made man and woman, and they were for each other, and Genesis 2 ends, and they come together to be one flesh and to make one flesh as one flesh, the first attack on all of creation is the serpent coming with lies between them to separate them from God and to separate them from each other. The, the human family as God's first institution in creation for the purpose of both redemption and the creation mandate is also God's first attacked institution and through the curse, through, through sin becomes the first cursed institution. And so we should come to family and what, and what it means to be ourselves with certain expectations about vigilance and what it's going to take and areas where it's going to be hard. But recognizing that in redemption, much of the curse can be undone 
and much of the original blessing can be experienced. Right? The third is, is that you can honor God by not getting married. I mean, think about it. The two people that taught the most about marriage in the Bible were what in terms of their marital status? Single, right? It's Jesus and Paul, right? You can honor what God says about family and family stability and gender and all those things and not be married. You don't have to be married to uphold the realities of family stability. In fact, you— if you're not in this kind of family, there is a family of redemption where we all become brothers and sisters that the normal family points to in redemption, which is the local church. And all of us being brothers and sisters with each other, and mothers and fathers to each other, and mothers and children to each other. Does that make sense? And so not only is that true, but Jesus actually says a number of things about singleness in this passage. This passage starts out to be about marriage, but once he says how limited divorce is, his own disciples say, well, in that case, we better get rid of the institution of marriage. So at least from a guy's perspective in this context, it was better to not get married at all than to be married. And so Jesus has a very interesting response to them. He says, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it will be given. Meaning, you can be, you can be like that, but it's true. And only people who are going to be willing to hear the truth and accept the truth are going to believe it because it is one of those truths that nobody wants to hear. I get that. He says, but then he says this, for some are eunuchs because—now let's just stop for a second. Okay, some people in the room may not know what a eunuch is, okay? So a eunuch in the ancient world was somebody who not only had their um, seminal producing organs removed, but also the seminal depositing organ removed medically. Um, usually because they were going to be in some kind of royal situation where they could, like, do things with royal women and then try to usurp the throne and complicate life. And so oftentimes people in power would uncomplicate their lives by uncomplicating their slaves' anatomies so that they could be okay about certain things that were happening or not happening. But what we need to understand is this. When Jesus uses this word, he's not only referring to people who have been physically made this. He's referring to everybody who isn't going to be married under this construct. Now, there's only one thing true about eunuchs that is different from every other human being and therefore clarifies why he would select this word when he is not literally referring to eunuchs. And that is this. Because he's saying that if you're not married and you believe the gospel, you are not having sex. That's what he's saying. If anybody ever tells you that the New Testament never says that people who aren't married can't have sex, I would start my answer with, haven't you read? Because using that category, he's specifically clarifying that, oh, you think marriage is hard. <laughs> you think staying married and not getting divorced and sticking with your spouse through thick and thin as the context in which you can both enjoy and gratify your sexual desires. You think that's hard. You're willing, to, you're willing to pitch all of marriage because of that difficulty. Well, let me just tell you that the alternative you may find even more difficult. There are some people who choose not to get married and so by definition become functionally eunuchs because the sexual ethic of Christian faith has always been unmitigated chastity and unmitigated celibacy. Those are the choices. But I want you to see this in the hardness of that teaching. There's also a profound realization in it, because he says this. Some people become eunuchs. Why? He says, because they were born that way. Because they were born that way. 
Now think about what that's who, who and what that's referring to. Right? There are people in our culture that, that, will, that will say Christians have no place, no understanding, no recognition, historically or presently, of anybody who has same-sex attractions, is transgendered, is, um, is born physically intersex, is utterly sexually androgynous, or any of these physical things that just make normal marriage enormously difficult. But Jesus is clearly saying here, there is a category of humanity, there's a group of people that are born in a place where they experience their own maleness or femaleness in a way that makes being part of marriage as it's laid out impossible for them. And before you say, well, yeah, but Nick, all they can do is be celibate. I mean, like, that's awful. Yes, but remember, Jesus is laying down the hard smack for everybody. Both options submit to God and not our gratification. And celibacy is actually not near as hard in a culture where everybody disbelieves its possibility. Most of humanity, for most of the history of humanity, has been celibate. The idea in our present porn sexualized culture that, that like, you will literally Freudianly explode if you don't have sex every 47 minutes just is a utter fabrication of what human nature is all about. But he also has a category for people who have been made eunuchs by men, which probably refers first to people who literally were made into eunuchs by people in power. Right? But— we could actually argue for probably a while about whether or not this would then include anybody who has been so damaged by anything that engaging in biblical marriage feels impossible, been so terribly sexually abused, is so kind of messed up because of some reason, is whatever, right? And I actually do think those would apply. But then there's a third category, and that is anybody who, because of Jesus and because of the kingdom, because of what they want to do in it, they choose to not get married, right? He says that's, that's a good thing. There's some who become celibate for the kingdom because they want to risk something that they couldn't risk if they had little kids at home. Because they want to work, they want to work 90 hours a week for something. They want to sleep in their office because they care so much about, they want to run a clinic in North Guatemala. They want to go into North Korea. They want to, they want to do something. They want to go Try to converse, uh, convert ISIS officers, right? You shouldn't tell your wife over coffee with four children that you're going to go do that. It's immoral. But if you're single and you want to do something that might get you killed, you're free to do it. You can't go and try to get yourself killed. That's not noble, right? When Origen wanted to go get himself killed, his mom, like, hit all his clothes. It's kind of a funny story from church history. But, be, but the early church said you should never try to get yourself killed. But there are many things that we might do in risking the gospel that could create a very difficult time for a family if we had one. There were lots of Christians in the, in the communist era who didn't marry because they knew they were going to be faithful to Jesus. Some of them were going to be pastors, and they knew that the communist government was going to throw them in prison all the time and beat them half to death, and they might die, and so they didn't take a wife. Jesus didn't take a wife. And he didn't have a home. Right? And then lastly, um, for, for some of us, you're like, okay, so Nick, if I'm off this plan already, then what? And the answer is this. Um, the answer is you don't go, oh, I'm, I'm not, I can't hit the ideal, so I quit. That's never the Christian idea. The Christian idea is I'm off the ideal. God is a redeeming God, 
and I approximate it as much as I can. I move towards it as much as I can, and then I trust that God can redeem things. And not only that, but in seeking to find that redemption, you may actually find that you are given the opportunity to display God's gospel redemption in ways that normal nuclear families or traditional families can't. So for example, if you marry someone who has kids from like another relationship, you're forced into adoption. Right? There, there is a certain love that biological parents are supposed to have for your, their kids. And if you don't have them for your kids, there's something psychologically wrong with you. Right? And I know you blame your parents, okay? But you're supposed to have a certain kind of compassion. The Bible's like, doesn't a mother care for her own child? Doesn't a father have compassion on his own son? Right? That's, that's supposed to be there. And if you don't have that, like there's something to happen to you. There's something wrong inside of you. But if you don't love somebody else's kid like they're your own kid, that's not weird. That's normal. Like you, you kind of love your own kids and they annoy you and other people's kids just annoy you. Right? But if you marry somebody else who has two other kids from like another relationship, you just signed up for adoption. You just signed up for treating those kids like they from, they're from your very body. You just, and, and what are, what kind of children of God are we? Are we God's children because God created us? I know that's a touchy question. The answer is in the Bible, not really. That's not why we're counted God's children. The Bible says in the New Testament that we are counted God's children in redemption through adoption. And so you may have gotten off track for some reason, and you may seek to come back on track as much as you can. And not only can God bring an enormous amount of redemption to that situation, but he may actually do it in such a way that you may actually get to show things about the kingdom that you maybe wouldn't have otherwise. Right? And then lastly, outside of those options, you might think, well, Nick, aren't there other options? I mean, like, is it really bad to live with somebody? What about this? And, you know, I'm just taking my time or whatever. And the answer is no. Biblically and gospel speaking, no. Living together with someone is not an option. Dating somebody for longer than you need to to figure out if they're going to be your husband or your wife is not an option. Christians who are following the gospel get into a relationship because they think this might be the kind of person they could marry, and they get out of a relationship the moment they know this isn't the person they're going to marry. Because listen, that, that person isn't for you to enjoy. Their 20s aren't for you to have fun with, right? Do you think, do you think that that girl's future husband wants you to, you to enjoy her 20s so that he can enjoy her 30s and late childbearing and difficulties with debt and blah, 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 while she's wasting money on dates with you? Right? No. No. And so prolonged dating isn't an option for Christians. Fornicating isn't an option for Christians. Listen, you stop fornicating, and it will speed up this whole process, okay? I was in a car one time with three other guys. All four of us were married, and we were talking about how long we dated our spouse for, right? And one guy was like seven years, one guy was like six years, one guy was five years. And I was like, are you, you guys were fornicating. They were like, yes, we were. And all three of them didn't get married until their wives threatened, their wives who were then girlfriends threatened to dump them. Ladies, I do encourage that approach, by the way. Um, and then they were like, oh, I, I don't want to break up, and I love this person. Well, the minute you stop putting the cart before the horse, you'll get a whole lot more serious about, is this the person I want to marry or not? And you'll get a whole lot more serious about actually marrying them. That's intentional. God is 
is intentionally forcing the issue for the good of everyone, but as much as anything else, so that we would embrace what it means to look like the kingdom and to fulfill our creational purpose and meaning rather than communicate everything different, which is, leads to the second thing, which is that um, family is supposed to reflect the kingdom. And it's a, it will if we live it out the way the Bible teaches, right? Our gender represents not just complementarity and diversity between us, men and women, but also in God. So think about it. Men and women are different persons of one flesh in the marriage union. Get it? Two in person, one in flesh, which is not the same but is in some way analogous to God being three in persons and one in essence. There's a diversity and a unity, and in that unity is beauty and mutual enjoyment, right? But it also has to do with the diversity between us and God. How is it that God can love us when we are different than him? Nor sinful people normally don't do that. They normally don't like people that are different than them. But we're very different from God. In fact, we're very inferior to God. And yet, his love is set on us. Now, how can anybody believe that if a man can't love a woman different from him as a woman, and a woman loving a man as a man? When was the last time you heard anybody say, what a great invention is a man? Or even non-sexually, what a great invention is a woman? The first man said, I can't believe this. This is amazing. Right? Um, the marriage covenant represents the relationship between Christ and the church. Covenant, which is what a marriage is. Listen, how many covenants do we have in our society? How many covenants? Right? I'm not talking about neighborhood covenants. You know you keep that boat in your backyard and you're not allowed to. Okay? Right? Real covenants that are unconditionally binding and can't be broken. I mean, there's, there's like one, right? Marriage. That's it. And there's only one divine covenant in which God says, I am going to stay with you. And there's only one way we show covenant. Lifelong, no matter where we move to, we can show it in the local church by having covenantal friendships and love, loving each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. But ultimately, our families is one of, the, one of the greatest options we have if we're married to demonstrate what it looks like for very different people to be covenantally bonded with each other. Parenting reflects our relationship with God. I mean, why do you think so many kids have such a screwed-up idea of God? It's actually not their philosophy that they picked up at college. One of the reasons so many young men and women have a terrible understanding of God is because of how their dad treated them. They were never good enough. Everything was about whether or not they'd be good enough. Or their dad lied to them. Oh, you're so fabulous. You're so wonderful. And then they knew their dad didn't believe that. Men, men are incapable of living out that BS that self-esteem parenting tells us we have to say, but we show our kids we don't believe it in our guts, and they know that we're lying to them. So when they go and read the Bible, and they read the words of their Heavenly Father, what do you think that they think? People cannot help but understand an image of what God is like by looking at their parents. They can't help it. It's like we're hardwired for it. So you can tell your kids they should read the Bible, and you can hope your kids go to Sunday school, and we can say, oh, kids, you should go to blah, 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 blah to get your idea of God. But they're going to get their idea of God from watching you treat them some, in whatever way we do. It terrifies me. But it's also one of the ways that God can make me serious about my godliness. 
that there would be so much at stake in it. How we treat children, whether we see it as giving life, and even with husbands, I know that like everybody works now, but even whether it's husbands or or wives working to create provision, points to the greater provision that God is our provider, and He provides everything that we need, and somebody besides us takes care of us. No matter how self-sufficient that you believe you are, that is something that that is supposed to be demonstrated in the world, that we take care of each other in families and not— and it's not usually mutual. It's usually somebody has more responsibility to take care of somebody else. That's where we got the idea of dependence. And it is not in any sense wrong for a woman to be dependent on a man. That, that is—you can express the kingdom that way. And if you both go to work, you can express that parents are going to work to provide for their children and generously for people around them. And when we don't live towards these things in a way that embodies the kingdom and embodies the gospel, then we, we, with our actions, tell lies about the kingdom and the gospel. Right? Sex outside of the covenant—this is a quote from Moore—represents a Christ who uses the church without joining her covenantally to himself. Jesus isn't a God who loves his bride and then leaves her, right? But that's what we're doing— If we treat children as expenses, if we abuse them, if we ignore them or abandon them, we're, we're teaching that we believe the universe is like that. That we believe that God ignores and abuses and abandons and sees us as an inconvenience. Some of the people that believe so strongly that God doesn't really love them, that in his hiddenness, he is utterly separated from them, are guys and, guys and girls who had a, a feeling like their father didn't really care if they were around. Right? Even, on, even not just the divorce So one of the biggest ironies in the church And I don't really understand this I understand how people can convince themselves of it But there's so many Christians Who get divorced thinking Well God is going to forgive me Right? I mean think of the irony of that, right? I'm going to abandon my wife Or my husband And God is going to forgive me Even though my marriage is itself The picture that God never abandons us have you ever thought about the irony of that? Marriage is the main example by which God shows us that no matter how problematic this idiot that you're married to— I'm speaking mainly in the voice of my wife there— um, it, that, that you stay with them. You got all kinds of problems. But you're working for their redemption. They're working for your redemption. You're working things out. You're learning to forgive. You're never giving up. The whole purpose of that is so that we demonstrate that Jesus is always working for the redemption of his church. Always working to love his people. Always bringing them to repentance. Always being long-suffering. Always seeking that. And then we go, yeah, he's like that, so I'll get divorced. Right? But you know, it's also true of people that decide that they're just going to be comfortable with an unhappy marriage. Too. There's nothing engaging with the world about people who stay married and hate it. Right? And so we're supposed to be drawn to each other to figure it out, to repent, learn how to repent and forgive. Most marriages are bad because people will not repent and forgive. There's, there's, there's virtually nothing. In fact, I would probably go far as to say nothing that a marriage that really repents and really forgives can't get get past. 
Because all of your history, all the terrible stuff that's been left unspoken, and the frustration, and them not dealing with this, and the stonewalling, and the complaining, and the blah, 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 every time something else happens, all that comes up again. It all comes up again. You're like, ah, I hate you. But when redemption happens, and there's real forgiveness, every time something redemptive happens, all of that comes up again as everything you've overcome together. All of your past, all of it, is either a weight that drags you down, if it's left unforgiven and unconfessed and unrepented of, or it becomes a jet engine that blasts you into joy in experiencing redemption and seeing how much you've been able to overcome together with God's love and grace. Marriages that have been redeemed from incredible things are sometimes the greatest lighthouses and beacons of the beauty of the glory of the redemptive work of Jesus and what he can do in really screwed up people. And this is true. These kinds of things are true of like how when we look at gender as just something we've constructed or we delay commitment. I mean, think about this. You marry, you, you date a girl for five years. I would, go so, I would go so far as to say if you started dating as an adult and you date her three years, Here's what you're implicitly saying. Being with you is good enough to be around you, but not enough to forsake everything that we should belong to each other. Now, that's basically like going to hell, right? If you say to Jesus, I like you enough to get whatever benefits I can get from kind of being around the church or kind of believing some good Christian principles, whatever, but I'm not going to give myself entirely to you. I mean, I'm not going to repent and believe. I'm not going to like lay down my life and follow you as your disciple. I'm not going to seek to receive the regeneration of the Spirit and to walk in step with the Spirit and to live in self-sacrificial love. That, that's called going to hell. That's called damnation. That's called, that's called being what John Wesley called an almost Christian. Right? And so even the way we do things that we would normally in the church that happen all the time in the church that we think are fine, they don't actually represent the kingdom. But people only thrive and godliness only thrives when we look at what we do with ourselves and see if it represents the kingdom and fits God's purpose and reason for creation. And then we have the courage to believe him that if we walk into that, it's where we're going to be blessed in terms of just general thriving and in godliness. Oh, let me end with this. We want—the whole series of onwards about engaging the culture, okay? But in order for this to work at all, um, nobody's engaged by families of people who hate each other, marriages that are terrible, people who are dating and using each other all the way everybody else in the world does, and so on. And so the, really the first thing that has to happen for us is, is that we have to engage ourselves with these truths. You see, most of us— have been cooking in the pot of secular modernity our whole lives. And so we, we who, who say that we're Christians and who believe in Jesus actually don't have one religion. We have two. One we have come to believe in, that is the message of Jesus, and the other one we have absorbed and we hardly even know we believe it. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much conflict inside of us. Because there's a religion that we've absorbed, we don't even know it's there, and so it has enormous power because it's still anonymous. And then we have that we've believed in Jesus. And so we have all those fears about marriage, that list of ten and more at the beginning. 
and we're, we're, we're upset. We, we think we should be getting more out of this. We're not particularly happy. And all of those things are there. And here's the problem is one of the things that we've, we think we've learned about romances is that the other person is supposed to help you be happy, that they're supposed to be attracted. Here's the problem with all human romance. Your romantic partner cannot be enough to fulfill your needs because most of the time your romantic partner will be the problem. The great unhappiness in your relationship is going to be the other person. And so if you, your hope, your romance is wrapped up in them as a person, you are doomed. You're doomed. But if you will believe the gospel, if you will believe, and if you haven't believed it yet, or if you haven't really believed it against the religion you've absorbed, if you will believe that God created you for a purpose— a real purpose. It's the reason you're the gender you are. He's created you to probably form a family or to give yourself to the kingdom and singleness or one of these things. And that's, that's, that's the life that you were called to that has incredible meaning and purpose. And that that, the romance of that engages you. One, you can be driven like you are madly in love even if you're single and you have nobody to set those affections on. Those same affections can be turned directly to Jesus and you can live with all the power and motivation of a present romance in your heart and life. And if you are with someone, then you will have something that will power you to go after them. Jesus is the Lord and the God who goes after his wayward wife. He, he is the one who, when he's rejected, even, even in the Bible, he says about Israel when they were at a certain point, he says, I wrote you a certificate of divorce and sent you away. Why? So that after they, they went out in the world and they suffered for 70 years, he could go and bring them back. Even his divorce was redemptive. And Hosea, Hosea's wife, Gomer, is a, she's a prostitute or she's a floozy. We don't really even know. She might just be that lady who's just like, oops, how did I get in this bed? And, and yet, God's like, go after her and show Israel. That's what I'm like. God is always the one who's going after a spouse. Are, are you, do you have enough romance about the beauty of creation, about two becoming one flesh, about for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, that, that in that they will become one flesh, and they will make one flesh, and out of that, all of the creation mandate will be accomplished. Out of that, all of redemption will end up walked out. It will represent the kingdom, and it will show the beauty of who God is. That Will that drive you to the person you are having the greatest difficulty loving? Because all redemption, all of it, every, every ounce of it, starts with an initiator. A self-sacrificial, self-dying initiator. Every time. Every time somebody apologizes. Every time somebody goes the extra mile. Every time somebody forgives. Every time anything happens that leads to the beautiful harmony of the diversity of the family, of union, somebody dies to themselves or more. Somebody apologizes more than they think that they have to. Somebody does something like Jesus. And when they do that, they do what they were created to. And when they do that, they act like Jesus. And when they do that, they live out the gospel. And when they do that, that relationship looks like the kingdom. 
And what it always produces is people who start thriving. And what it always produces is godliness, which leads to blessedness, which leads to joy and the elusive happiness that you've been chasing. And so whatever your past is, whatever has happened before 12.15 this afternoon, is not the important thing for what's going to happen between now and the rest of eternity. What matters is, what are you going to do now? Are you going to trust Jesus? Are you going to repent of what you may have believed? And there's, there's no reason you would have heard any of this before, right? This is, everything I might have said might have been totally news to you, and you're like, I haven't been doing that. Okay, great. What are you going to do now? You're going to get together with somebody to study the Bible on this? Have you heard enough that you can believe and trust him? How is this going to change the way you're going to do any relationship that you're in? How does this affect the way that you're single right now? What are you going to do with your estranged spouse? How are you going to deal with your children? How can you and your embracing of gender, family, sex, children, all of that, be in line with the truth of creation for the reason it was created, and so show the kingdom so that everybody that touches you or your family experiences something of the attractive redemption of Jesus. And beautifully and regeneratively medicates your misery. Um, we're going to sing a, f- a final song like we often do, and the point of that is not to do a quote of music. The point of that is so that after we hear a message, how artfully or unartfully it's been delivered, we can think about what we ought to do with this. Right? The Bible says, don't be hearers of the word and not doers. Today is the day of salvation. Um, transformation starts with belief, repentance and belief. And so as we sing for the next few minutes, um, if you don't even mouth the words, it's fine. What matters is is that if if God is doing something inside of you, if you feel conviction, if you know that you need to do something, if you know you need to apologize to somebody who's been almost touching you for most of this service, or whatever, if it's a kid, uh, whatever. Um, If you need to propose right now, um, we know whatever it is, um, uh, respond, respond. Because the minute you walk out that door, um, a thousand distractions are going to come. That's why we come in here. So whatever you know you have to do, do it now. Let's pray. Father, as we um, sing this last song, and we, we sing that, that, that Jesus is enough for us, that we, we'll start with believing the gospel and believing in the greater husband, our greater father, and believing what we're here for. We pray that now you would give us the, the, the capacity to repent and believe the willingness, the courage to do it. And I pray, Father, that right now, things that have been laying around for years would start to get broken up. Trajectories that are leading us the wrong way would get corrected. That, um, that confusion that was just leading to fear would get blown away and that you would solidify us and clarify us in the right direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.